what it brings back is huge return, right? It's placemaking, it's providing experience, it's sense of pride, it's even branding for what goes on a logo, right? You can't think of Chicago and not think of the bean, right? So Anish Kapoor's Silver Cloud, you know, is an unbelievable success of, uh, of an artwork, but the cost of that artwork is puny compared to the return that that city of Chicago has received from one artwork. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Human City. I'm Stig. Got a fun one today. We got Lance Fung of Fung Collaboratives. He's a curator of public art and art in public space. A distinction we get into within the episode. So listen in. He's done insane projects like The Snow Show and his current work, Illuminate Coral Gables in Florida. So you got to check it out on his website, but it's even better in person. So I've heard. Um, in this episode, we talk about a lot around public art, but we talk about the process of finding, building, and supporting great public art. There's something in here for creatives, public workers, and just regular people who want to see more art. It's the whole landscape. And Lance, lastly, is a great guy. Super friendly, super knowledgeable. Everything he says is like gold. So you've got to listen up. And thank you, thank you. Check everything out in the show notes. Welcome to Human City. My pleasure, Stig. This is a super fun opportunity and my very first podcast. No way. Great. Well, well this is going to be fun. So I think I always ask as my first question, what city were you born in? And did that have any part in how you got into the art world? And then maybe we could talk about the story about how you got into the art world. Sure. So I was born in San Francisco. And then when I was three, my parents moved to um, what was not yet known to become Silicon Valley. So I lived in the South Bay in Northern California. And then I moved to New York City for graduate school, stayed there for a lifetime for a career with a brief two year stint in London. And then shockingly to me, returned back to the Bay Area for my quote unquote golden mature years. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting. I don't think the place for me um, uh, affected me uh, as far as being inspired into entering the creative field. It was realistically my parents. So nice. my mother is a big art appreciator and an art patron and collector. And my father was an incredible artist who made his, his, an income. Um, through more of the applied arts, not his his own fine art, because he realized he had to raise kids and and do the traditional route of mortgage and all that kind of heavy heavy stuff. Make a living. <laughs> yeah, make a living. Yep. Nice. So how how did you get into the art world first off, and then how did that transition into public art? So for me, it's interesting, right? So 
after now a career in, in, in the contemporary art field, um, I have decided to do some teaching on the side, which I love. So half of when I speak sounds like a teacher, <laughs> half sounds like a curator, but they go, they go one and the same, right? <clears throat> to my students is, you know, life has a path for you and you can't really predefine it. It's not like two points and a line in between. So never in my wildest imagination would I anticipate moving to New York, working for a, a top 10 gallery, running a top 10 gallery, opening my own gallery, and then becoming a curator. I set my sight for undergraduate school of going to UC Davis to double major in biology and visual arts because I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then when I was in school, I thought, well, I'll hybridize my two interests and I'd become a medical illustrator. And thank God I didn't because that industry disappeared because once a computer came in, you kind of don't need that artistic skill. You could like render Photoshop. Mm. Um, I then decided I'd go to graduate school in Manhattan. I went to the School of Visual Arts for my MFA degree, thinking that I didn't want to become a self-sustainable artist or a famous artist or one that showed at the MoMA, which is what most young artists want to do. I actually wanted to teach. So I ended up going to get my master's for my terminal degree so I could teach college level. And then the art world grabbed me and through a great series of fortunate opportunities, it just pushed me in a different direction. But now after having a fruitful time, a fun time in the art world, I'm doing what I set out to do. I don't know, what, I don't wanna mention how many decades ago, but a long while ago. No so need. <laughs> I love those sort of securitist roots because if I had gotten the MFA from SVA and then just right away got a teaching career, I would probably be a fairly vapid teacher because I wouldn't have all those experiences, right? And so I think one of the reasons why my students like me, beside my irreverence and my bluntness, is I get to share real life art experiences of working with artists that you, you read in history books or discovering and mentoring young artists or like living with art and all the nitty gritty drama that swirls around the art world, such as every kind of ism of sexism, racism, you know, et cetera, which only now I think the art world is starting to look in the mirror and see how antiquated some of its approaches are. Um, so no plan. I'm not the man with the plan, but it worked out. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, curation, like curating pieces, working at a gallery. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about that. So maybe in for the listeners to like, what does it mean to curate and how I know you probably teach classes on this. So this might be a big question, but what like and how can that apply to maybe public art? You know, how did those lessons you learned in curation and gallery world uh, like help you in making public art? So within the art world, there are two primary sectors, the commercial art world and the non-commercial art world. So the commercial art world is a marketplace. Galleries exhibit work to sell. Auctions exhibit work to sell. And so there, there's our definition for commercial sector. The non-commercial sector is um, no monetary gain um, or through a transaction. So that would be your museums, your artist residencies, your artist spaces, your nonprofit spaces, and what have you. 
often the two don't intersect. One doesn't start in one side or one field and switch over to the other, which is what I did. And it was very um, easy for me to do, but I knew it was uncommon. So a curator typically works in the non-commercial sector. They're the people who come up with the art shows that you go and see. So if you go and see an exhibition on Matisse or a survey exhibition of pottery from the 40s, it would take a trained academic to uh, create that exhibition. And the title is called The Curator. So originally a curator comes up with, like a scientist, a hypothesis. I'd like to investigate Matisse's use of blue um, or Monet's interest with, you know, um, botanicals and lilies. And then they do all the deep dive research. They come up with a hypothesis. I think they he used blue because, or let's evaluate Picasso's blue period, or let's do an exhibition on blue. And what does that mean, right? Is your inspiration uh, a period? So a psychological period of Picasso, the use of blue paint with Matisse that translates to Eve Klein blue, or I just like Tiffany. I like to shop at Tiffany's. So I'm gonna work with that blue and that inspiration of commodity, right? So then the curator then um, researches, selects the artist or artwork, cobbles it together and creates the exhibition. Uh, the funny thing is my biggest pet peeve is, well, first when I started, when I made that transition from the commercial world, from being a gallery director turns turning into a gallery owner, I then made that transition to be a curator uh, and no one knew what a curator was. So I'd sit on an airplane, you know, and you're sitting there and usually there's inevitably someone nice like, oh, hi, where do you live? What do you do, right? I'm a curator. And they'd look at me completely blank. And I'd say, so what a curator does, and I give this explanation. Well, now people sort of have a quasi idea about it. Like it has something to do with art and putting things together. And so my biggest pet peeve is the bastardization of my title called a curator, right? We know what a doctor does, a dentist, an accountant. Well, when I listen to the new radio, it's like, come, and it's an ad inevitably come to Bergdorf's and see a perfectly curated shoe collection. I'm like, what the hell, right? That's not, you might be organizing, you might be vetting, you might be labeling, you might be selecting, you're not curating it, right? And so I think it's very funny. The, the main uh, upshot is when people hear the word curator or the job curator, it seems fancy, um, but it's actually meant to be more intellectual and rigorous. Um, anyway, so that's a definition between okay. commercial and non-commercial. Good to know. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of nuance there. I'm glad to hear th- uh, more about that field. I mean, I had, had no clue. Uh, so what can we let's talk about some of your work. What's some past work you've like public art specifically you've done? Um, and yeah, maybe. Yeah. Talk, talk us through it. Your favorite or ones that stand out, whatever. So that's another interesting one. So public art the, um, with anything, right? With anything, anything you do, there, there are metrics to determine quality. So within the art world, we know there's like a, a great artwork that you go and see at the museum and there are reasons why it's aesthetic, the narrative, the skill that's required to make it. So public, the industry of public art is kind of the step Cinderella stepsisters, 
right? So you can, there's a good one and a bad one or whatever, but it's not as, um, let me reboot that. When one looks at public art, you can look at really great public artwork. Art in the public places is the highest end or highest form of that industry. So often public art is laden down with an extremely heavy process. There's a call for proposal. There's a review committee. Non-art people have a say, such as the mayor's partner or the funder or the location based on functionality. So you have to find an artist and sometimes it's a bit of shoving a square peg in a round hole. Often public art is also the anti-art form, anti-homeless, anti-pigeon, anti-low-maintenance, you know, uh, right? So how many artists want to work um, with jumping through all of those hoops? Not many. Now, when we look at the other definition that I brought up earlier, which is a more current way of looking at things, that's art in public places, meaning art is more important than the public. So you find an artist who comes up with a really great concept that they wanna make an artwork that's in the public space, viewable 24 seven, and also um, can be beneficial to the area, right? But it's not that the artist is being forced to apply a function to their work, right? That's a difference between artist or craftsperson or artist and architect. So um, having established those boundaries, um, I, I, I curate temporary exhibitions often. They're large scale, they're multiple artworks around downtown and they're often considered public art, but by real definition, it's art in public spaces. But I don't mince words because of the general public, it's public art. But for the more refined listener here, there is a way to discern the difference between um, quality of public art and it's primarily based on process. So I think many of your listeners are educated cultural people that are also very attuned to those nuances. And so the better public art projects using the ubiquitous term is one that allows the artist to be um, in control of the work and the process. It's not factoring into all of these other external issues. I don't know if I quite answered your question. No, no yeah, that's great. I No, that's a really good distinction because, yeah, for me, I totally lopped it all. I'm such a lughead in this, I guess. I am glad. I'm really glad to hear this. What, what's some of the work you've done? Like just, I don't know, let's pick one. Uh, yeah. So when I um, was unintentionally working on this transition from the commercial to the non-commercial, um, I was curating smaller exhibitions for um, my first boss, which was a major gallery and a big collector named Holly Solomon Gallery in Manhattan. Um, when I opened my gallery, Lance Fung Gallery, also in Soho, New York, I would often curate smaller group shows during the summertime. So I had my little practical training at really two good camps, but I came up with this wild um, imaginative out of the box concept back then. I didn't realize it was so out of the box um, uh, concept titled the snow show. And that was an intellectual exercise in which I did research and selected artists and architects. I partnered them based on my own kind of set of criteria. I introduced them to each other. 
they accepted the invitation and then they had to collaborate, which was not so common back in the late 90s when the show began. It was many years to realize the project, but ultimately what it resulted in was an art exhibition outdoors in which these masterpieces were made from snow and ice that all melted in two months. So six, six million euro was spent on design and making work Badass. that completely cool. completely melted and went back into earth. Wow. Insane. That's <laughs> so cool. Wow. I wish I would have seen it. So you can't see it on my website. Um, right. But other than yeah. that, it was completely ephemeral. But what was amazing was I was able to work with architects like Norman Foster and Zaha Deed and, um, and Tadeo Ando partner with amazing artists like Kiki Smith and Tsai Kwe Chang and Anish Kapoor. And that was my transition. So I went in completely naively, in completely over my head, realized it and had no concept of what I had done, which is good, so I didn't grow big ego, but the press yeah. loved it. So the photographs were slash are so stunning that it went worldwide around a million times. And it wow. was like, who is this guy? And that was my launch right into the public art sector. Wow, right on, That's that worked out great. I, and I know you have one coming up, which is gonna be really cool. It's called Illuminate Coral Gables in Coral Gables, uh, Florida. Could you talk about that? Yeah, thanks for the plug. We're super excited. Um, we were hired in 2019 to realize a citywide public art exhibition throughout downtown Coral Gables, focusing with light. Um, what we wanted to do curatorially, right? Instead of doing a big light festival where buildings crumble and turn into butterflies and it really becomes a reason to go out downtown at night and like drink beer and hang out with your friends. That's all cool and fun. But for a proper art show, we really wanted to make sure that proper artworks and artists were involved. So we were hired before the pandemic. We started working on it. The pandemic hit everywhere, including us. And we plugged along through that period and basically curated and realized and created a million dollar show all on Zoom. The show actually was realized. Wow, Our first iteration opened in February, um, which is also on View on our website. But in speaking to your question directly, we're working on the second iteration, which will open on January 14th in Coral Gables, Florida. And so we're looking at between 10 and 20 projects. The artists that we're working with range in gender and diversity and interest um, and budget. And so each artist, so the curatorial work is working with each artist to hear their ideas, be their sounding board um, and come up with a good conceptual proposal. Then it goes to my husband, who's the uh, project director of our company. He then works with production, bidding things out, um, um, engineering issues like that. Then we go in as a collaborative team and fabricate each of the works put them on site and open it to the public. And then our shows are always for free. So cool. So cool. I, with artwork, uh, especially in public, public space, art in public. Um, so it's, I feel like it's so hard to really um, make something that everyone likes, you know, I think, especially when you like plopped into a city, um, 
I think that's why local residencies are so popular because you get like a local is sort of, you could bring the community in. Like if you're, if you are like someone from some random city comes to you and says, we want to make public art, how would you, or we want to have art, uh, we want to have something happen. What, how would you go about that? Like, what would that process look like? Yeah. And that happens to us a lot. Right. And sometimes you have a good process and sometimes you have a really um, awkward one or uncomfortable one. So the first one we do is, you know, um, so we interview them as much as they interview us. So first of all, what are your goals and what are your intentions? And if it purely is commercial, right? We just want to brand this new shopping mall and get people to do Instagram pics and, you know, and get business downtown. Then we sort of enter with a bit of trepidation because it means they really won't value our expertise and the quality of the art that we want to bring. They just want a, a big expensive decorative bobble dropped on their site, right? So those projects we usually walk away from. Um, those who are really interested in the process like the city of Coral Gables, and we had a lot of discussions in the beginning because we didn't know if we were the right fit. They really, they all toured around and saw all these great light festivals around the world. And they usually last three, four days and they're really visually stunning spectacles but it would be similar to going to like the ice cream museum or the Van Gogh museum or that, that show of all the dead, the cadavers, right? So it's artistic, but I wouldn't probably equate it to Michelangelo, right? Which is the goal, right? Of discovering the artists of the day. And so we had to really establish this was not just a light festival, but it would be an art show that involved light and people would still want to come down and see it, right? It doesn't mean art is mutually exclusive to those educated or affluent, right? We all drew with crayons when we were little. So we wanted to make sure we were on the same page and we were for the most part, right? And even still, and in today's discussion, it's like, what's a crowd pleasing work? Cause you always know, you think you know that this is what the public would like. Well, I don't know. I don't know what you would like any more than I. And sometimes we under the public art sector underestimates the general public, totally. right? They can actually see something and like it and question and then go and research it versus drive by, see it and not think about it ever again. So that process is a very, oh. um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated one. Um, and so we're, we just got a new project, one that I had been fighting for for six years to finally sign the contract. We got it. Nice work. Wow. Yeah, it took, it took effort, Insane. right? All this RFQ, RFP, meeting, interview, all this stuff, we finally got it. We signed the contract and now we started to share the vision. Like we heard what their vision was, what they needed, where it needed to go, why did it. So we started giving the artist list and then, and then they're coming back with very rudimentary um, questions or making decisions not based on quality. And so we're now at that fork in the road. Do we want to do this project? I, I'm glad I got it. If I didn't get it, I would have wanted it even more, you know, that kind of feel. So we got it. But is this just going down the rabbit hole where we're doing what we would call plop art, buy work of art that's in the studio, create it, ship it, drop it on your site and call it good. What we like to do really immersive, site 
specific or site-inspired relevant work. We want the artwork to be lasting so that it doesn't become dated. So when people go by this work, they have an experience and every time they experience it, it may be slightly different. So we all have been around traveling in our own uh, neighborhoods or on vacation and many cities engage in having public art. And we could think of the works that are, are more interesting versus that are just, again, only Instagrammable. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. every project is very different. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm sure I can only imagine. And I think it's a good point. Like uh, from looking at the work on your website, I mean, the, the level of it is beyond just like you said, just like putting some uh, like um, design on a, a wall in a mall, you know, like the level is exceeds it by like a hundred, you know, where people don't realize what they're getting um, when they're working with you, you know, or having this high level um, art. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, something to say for that it's like it's awesome you know um so like in general there's a lot of people that work in cities uh listening to this podcast what advice would you give to someone working or in a city uh like in a government position let's say that's like that needs that wants to enable more public art what advice would you give Great question. And first of all, thanks for the compliment. And when I get those compliments, it always makes me awkward because really the thanks and credit go to these artists. So these artists who end up making something beautiful and that you can put outside and it can be out in the sun and the rain and the snow, and it's not gonna flake off or peel off or break down. It, it's safe and beautiful and inspiring. And then you actually read the artist statement and you hear what their intentions are about that thing you look at and it transforms your experience. I mean, that's sublime. And that's what we try to do is figure out the right artist for the right situation. And so um, when it comes to um, city managers and city planners and mayors and what have you, governors, we encourage all cities to adopt the 1% for public art plan. Very few cities do have that in place, but what that means for your listeners is when a developer comes to town to build a new building, um, a large building, it's not your individual residence, right? Um, they 1% of the build budget um, should be dedicated to commissioning uh, an artist to make a work on site, or even in the worst case scenario, plop art, right? 1% has to go towards yeah. artwork on that site, right? And so the one thing is we'll hear cities say, oh, no, 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 we don't want to scare off developers because it's, you know, extra money and they're going to view it as a tax. Well, most developers that once they have to do it, they have no problem paying for it. Yeah, it's 1%, and it could add up to millions. But at the end of the day, usually that cost is just passed on to the end user, right? The tenant or the person you're selling the shopping mall to. So it, you know, it's an added expense up front. But what it brings back um, is huge return, right? It's placemaking. It's providing experience. It's a sense of pride. It's even branding for what goes on a logo, right? You can't think of Chicago and not think of the Bean, right? So Anish Kapoor's Silver Cloud, you know, is an unbelievable success of uh, of an artwork, but the cost of that artwork is puny compared to the return that that city of Chicago has received from one artwork, right? Um, so we want to encourage cities to 
to support that. And then the next thing from a practical end is we want to encourage the city or the developer to actually research and try to find the right consultant, not the consultant who wants to do a quick flip because they're getting a percentage on the deal and they just go and, you know, it's like you, there's practically a manual guide shopping mall for bad public art that you could just buy this metal sculpture for 400000 and get it over with, right? But rather you get a, um, a consultant who cares about their work, who understands um, the, the function of architecture, landscape architecture, and public art, and how they all should dovetail. Um, you get a consultant who cares about the visitor experience in providing them some, with something unique and special that only great art can do. And so um, when you have a consultant like that, and there are a few of them around the country, then you have the opportunity of doing something special. Um, sometimes, and it's rare, or almost never, but it does happen. With the right partnership of the consultant, the city and the developer, the developer will say, oh my God, I love it. I think we now need to do this. And they'll add to their budget just because they want to take pride wow. in it. Now, not often, you know, they have a bottom line too. I've got to build this office building. I have $400 million to put into this thing. Yeah. And now, oh my God, I got to deal with artwork on it. Right. Um, but but they've learned how to deal. They've learned over the decades to accept landscape design, lighting design, public space. So this is the last missing element to really make uh, making something special. And, you know, you can always just say, oh, look at that Chicago bean. And then they all say, oh, OK, I get it. Right. There's a value there. It's like your podcast. Right. You know, what is that value? It's immeasurable but someone needs to come up with the metrics of giving you a dollar value for what you do. Yeah, totally. And it's hard you know, with, with developers, they, you know, when you look at a spreadsheet, um, public art, it's hard to write a number for that when it makes a lot of sense and it adds a lot of value, you know, really does. So I agree. And I think that it's going to only get more popular. So I like that. And that was a great answer, like phenomenal answer, really. Uh, well, I, I want to add one other thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, a, a thing that's happening uh, right now with the public art sector, and of course, you know, I'm saying, okay, that's sort of the general term, art in public places, highbrow, lowbrow, whatever. But the point is, because of the pandemic, the arts in general are suffering because of fundraising, lack of activities over a year. Um, I mean, we're going to see a fallout with a lot of cultural institutions that will disappear, just as they're talking about religious institutions and a lot of other things. Wow. Once you, like when you stop going to the gym, it's a whole lot harder to go back after a week or a month, but after a year, e, right? Well, so it's the same thing about people opening up their checkbooks um, or becoming members. So the cultural sector um, um, was ravaged like a lot of others during this pandemic. Well, public art was one thing one, one avenue where people could be creative and experience art. We were surprised at how few public art activities took place. So when we opened up Illuminate in Coral Gables in February, we were unsure if people would come out or not or how, how you know, they would interpret that experience. Well, Florida's more relaxed and where we are, in, where I am in California. So that was a benefit for that show. We did not want to create a super spreader. So we had our mask mandate. We had hand sanitizing stations all over. We had social distance stickers everywhere. And the work was outdoors and like 
spread out all around downtown. It was a mile walk to see the entire show. So we could accommodate people. People came out in droves and social distanced and had a great experience and saw the value. So cool. It was amazing. You know, wow. the pandemic, we benefited. This is a horrible thing to say, but we benefited from the, the year of living in a pandemic, right? Um, so I think people are looking at how art outdoors, concert outdoors, eating outdoors can be valuable. So there is this, you know, potential um, hope that art in public spaces becomes more valued um, rather than the way it's typically been looked at. That's, that's super exciting. Um, that's, yeah, I can't wait for that. Um, I think this is a good place to start wrapping up. Um, thank sure. you, Lance. That was this... give long answers. Sorry about that, but I know you can cut them in bits. Oh yeah, no. And that was, that was great. I don't, I don't, I think uh, you, you brought a lot to this world that I think is really going to help people. And I also think just in general now, like I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and be like, Oh, I didn't know that's what I need to do, especially in the um, public space. So I am excited about this going live first off. Uh, second off, now that we're um, wrapping up, what, how can people say hello or get in contact? Where's your work at? Um, yeah. Um, so I'm super accessible. <laughs> I'm always nice. available because I absolutely love what I do. It's not work for me. It really, I'm one of the fortunate few that my work is my passion. So there is no separation there. So um, uh, people can um, certainly contact us through our website. That's probably the easiest thing. Uh, and then you will get a direct response from me. It's not as if it's some robot or some assistant. It's it's me responding to all our emails. We also have a newsletter that goes out almost kind of monthly. And so you can sign up for the newsletter on our website, which is um, funcollaboratives.org. We will have a new website within a few months, which I'm really excited about because it's only about five years overdue. Uh, and I think it'll be a little more streamlined with the, with the narrative on it. Uh, but yeah, definitely reach out. If you are supportive of public art, I think uh, one of your uh, listeners, first thing you should do is just simply write your local government person that supported it. You know, city council people, mayors and what have you. Rarely do they get positive feedback, right? And then almost never will someone write about how much we love public art. They'll write about how they don't like it. Um, so I think th that simple gesture is a good thing. Uh, and then we do have Instagram, which is under my name. So you can follow us on Instagram at Lance dot. Oh, wait. My Instagram is Lance M. Fung. Fung. Nice. Yeah. Lance M. Fung. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Lance. That was a blast. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And it was super fun. Hey, guys, that is all. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, just send to humancitypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can hit me up at Twitter at humancitypod. Or even Instagram at human.city. I love listening. I love hearing it. Please, guys, absolutely anything. I'd love to talk. And that is it. I'm Stig. Goodbye, goodbye.